All right. Why don't you just flop open to Acts 13? That will be our starting point. But the message is entitled, The Commitment of Paul. This is part three. And, you know, one day, some of the animals on the farm were talking about helping um, the farmer to get breakfast going. And the chicken said, well, you know, we'll, we'll provide the eggs. And the cow said, you know, hey, I'll provide the milk. And then they all turn around, they look at the pig, and it's kind of hesitant. And he goes, you know, all you guys are involved, but if I get involved, I'm committed. If he provides the bacon, he's done. There's a big difference between being involved in the church and being committed to the church. Don't mistake him, ladies and gentlemen. Lenin, the founder of the Russian communists and communism, declared the following, quote, We will not accept into membership anyone with any reservations whatsoever. We will not accept into our membership anyone unless he is an active, disciplined, working member in one of our organizations. Should we, in our commitment to Christ and the gospel, be any less? Stop and think what you used to live for before you became a Christian. Worthless. It'll be gone away one day. The only thing that's going to last is what you do for Jesus. Doesn't mean the rest is not relevant, it's not important, it's not valuable for this world yet, but that, that's not the focus. And there's a lot of compromise, a lot of watering down of the commitment and everything to do the church of Jesus Christ. But nothing new. This has happened all along, from the beginning of times, because the church is made up of people. That's the problem. <laughs> but it's an individual commitment, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Paul told the Corinthians that it was um, required that a steward be found faithful regarding the gospel entrusted to him. Uh, this he did knowing that it first applied to him as God's chosen messengers we've seen. Um, when Paul wrote to the Philippians from the um, Roman prison, he gave them his slogan for life. Listen to it. Philippians 121. For to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. Is that your model? That means you're committed then. Any less is not commitment. Every Christian that died and shed his blood because he did not deny it, he did it because he believed the scriptures and he did it for your exhortation. Do not offend the martyrs. Paul considered himself the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because he personally uh, persecuted the church beyond measure to destroy it. He said in 1 Corinthians 15.9 and Galatians 1.13. Paul understood the grace of God was sufficient for his commitment and his call to serve Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace is towards me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all talking about those who were calling themselves apostles but were not. Yet not I, but the grace of God which is with me. He took to put the grace of God. He depended on the Lord for everything. Now, so we have looked at the result of Paul's transforming um, life experience on the Damascus Road in chapter 9 of Acts. The conversion of Paul, the commission of Paul, and the consecration of Paul. Incredible information. Then we focus on Paul's apostleship from three vantage points. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle by the will of God. And 
Paul the Apostle, for eternal life. All these perspectives give us great information and and, and uh, not only of the man, but the, the ways of God and how God deals with his church always. So what we want to do now is see Paul's commitment from a threefold picture of his life. First, Paul the missionary. Second, Paul the author. And thirdly, Paul the martyr. Let's begin with Paul the missionary. Here in Acts 13. Verse 1, it says, Now in the church there was at Antioch, there were certain people and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Notice God called Paul to the mission field. Okay, very important that you notice this. The call came while Paul was at the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch, as you know, had become the missionary center in contradistinction to Jerusalem. Jerusalem never got off the ground. They remained too Jewish, and they made no impact. The city was the third largest city of the Roman world, Antioch. Um, Rome being the first, then Alexandria, called the Eye of Asia. Now, the church of Antioch was established through persecution, as you know. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 20 tells us that. And the work was confirmed by Barnabas as the church at Jerusalem sent him in Acts eleven twenty two to check it out, to make sure it was the work of God. And the church was taught by Barnabas, Saul, for one year and that's where they were first called Christians, Acts 11.26. Before that, they were called those on the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The original name of Christians was those on the way. When we first all got saved, the late 60s, early 70s, it was on the way. Everybody go like this, okay? The church sent relief, if you remember, to the poor saints of Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul and the elders in Acts 11.30. So the men present that are here were said to be prophets and teachers. Men of the word. Gentlemen, you are the head of your home. God told Israel, you be the head, don't be the tail. God will hold you responsible for your wife, for your children, for your home, your decisions. You are the head. Adam was the one responsible for the fall. Yet it was Eve who fell. He transgressed. Why? Two reasons. He's the head of the human race, created first, and Eve was deceived, not Adam. Not cultural, but historical and biblical. So don't let people twist the scriptures to you. People want to be uh, politically correct today, and they want to have women in everything. And the Bible says a woman cannot usurp authority over a man as a pastor teacher over the church. Simple. End of conversation. Simple. Now, the men here, prophets, they were men who spoke the word of God to call people to repentance. Once in a while, they would reveal future things. That's the function. First repentance, then revelation of future things. Teachers were men who were expounding the word of God to instruct the believer to make them grow, develop and mature. Just like you've grown in the Lord. The years you've come to study and you, you, you're growing in the Lord tremendously from the day you were born again. 
Now, the men are named, there are five here. Barnabas was from Cyprus, uh, a benevolent man and um, a, a leading member of the church of Jerusalem as Acts 4 and 9 and 11 and many other passages tell us. Uh, Simeon called Niger from Africa, um, yet it's a Hebrew name, so he probably was a proselyte. Some try to link him with uh, Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus in Mark 15, 21, but that's a very stretching of the truth. It's not a connection. Now, then there was Lucius of Cyrene, um, could have been one of the initial ones who preached the word at the beginning in Acts eleven twenty, And then Manahan was brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, who killed John the Baptist. So here you have the connection. You know, some of you heard the gospel with your friends and you accepted the Lord, they did not. Okay? Some of you grew up with nice people and then they turned rats. And some of you grew up with rats and then they turned, you know, Christian. And there's a lot of combinations. Everybody starts out here, but where do you end up? The main thing is, have you been born again? Have you had Christ come into your life to make the difference? Not matter that what you were before doesn't matter. It's what are you now? That's the important thing. And then, of course, you have Saul, who was God's instrument to the Gentiles, who um, uh, becomes the central figure now, uh, the last half of Acts, from chapter 13 to 28. He is the focus of the book of Acts, not Peter. The first half is Peter. So he takes over. Now, notice God called Paul by the Holy Spirit in verse 2. The men were ministering to the Lord and fasting to seek the will of God. The word minister um, is the word that we get our word liturgy from. The word means to occupy uh, public office at one's own expense. It also meant service to the state, but the focus at one's expense. It appears three times in the New Testament. The two other times it appears describes the gift of the Macedonians for the poor saints of Jerusalem in Romans 15, 26-27 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1-4. through 4. And there, of course, you know that the Macedonians were deeply in poverty. They had nothing, but they gave of their poverty. It cost them at their own expense. So it's true to the association with the understanding of the Word of God. Now, these men served the Lord from their hearts and their gifts, not for gain or profit, giving themselves to God. Notice that. This type of service comes only by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, 18.25, Ephesians 5.18, walk in the Spirit. If you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, if you're led of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit of God. In our flesh, there's not one good thing. We must walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit for commitment. Now notice the men were sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit being led by God. Today, man's ear are tuned to other men, to politically correctness, to false heresy, to liberal theology, not to the Spirit of God, which is one with the Scriptures. I just had a guy talk to me about two weeks ago, and he gave me some things to listen. I said, it's off the wall. Well, okay, I'll listen to it. I talked to him last service. It's off the wall heresy. He's off the wall. Something's going to happen the 23rd of this month. I said, you come back after the 23rd. I'll prove you a false prophet. Have a nice day. Wow. They heard the voice of the Spirit. What did he say? Separate unto me. Wow. 
There's a difference between directed service and undirected service. One is effective, the other one is ineffective. Even as when Jesus told the disciples to cast their net on the other side. And they caught an abundance. John 21, 6. You can be doing okay, so you think, through the methods of man and their cleverness, their corporation model, church growth and all of this, and emergent, submergent, but if you do it God's way, he blossoms it. What's the key to Calvary Chapel, Pasadena? We teach the Word of God. That's all we do. I'm not trying to make the church grow. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm teaching you and I'm warning you. And I commit you to God. I'm not your Savior. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus Christ and the Word of God. They were called for a special work to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. This was the first missionary journey. Uh, the Holy Spirit is to guide the church. Uh, Acts 15, 28, 1 Timothy 4, 1 speaks expressly that in the latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed, seducing spirits, doctrines of demons. We are in the middle of heresy, ladies and gentlemen. The church keeps talking about this great revival. Where's it at? What are you talking about? There's going to be a great revival during the Great Tribulation. <laughs> okay? And everybody's kind of like cheerleaders, spiritual cheerleaders. Getting people emotionally, study the Word of God. Be a Christian. Be the church. They had already been called by the Holy Spirit to Antioch, but now their call is being confirmed by the church. Notice that. The call to an individual is always personal, followed by confirmation. God will speak to you first, then he'll confirm it through his word. Not through another person necessarily. First the word. Then that person, if he confirms it, it will be according to the word. All right? Not in addition, not in contradiction. There were men who were filled and led by the Holy Spirit. How are we doing? Are you being led and filled by the Spirit of God? Then you'll be one with the Word of God. Very important. Now notice God sent Paul out through prayer, it says verse 3. The men through prayer cooperated. Take that word cooperated with the Holy Spirit as they laid their hands on them to communicate affirmation of their call and to commend them to God who called them. The church didn't call them. The church didn't send them. The church agreed with God calling out and sending them. Directed service. If the church does it, it's indirected service. Wow. The men... Through prayer and fasting, release them for the Lord's work, being obedient to God's revelation and His leading. God would replace them by raising up someone else in the church. I've never sent anybody out. You know that? Now, Robert Lerma is going out. Next week, he's being transferred to Australia. I didn't send him out. His work sent him out there. But God's going to use him. People have gone out, they've been in other ministries, they've been pastors. I don't have no notches on my belt. You feel God sent you out? Go. Drop me a line once in a while. I'm not responsible for you. If I send you, you'll probably fail. Then you'll blame me. Wow. God would direct Paul into two other missionary journeys, as you know, that are found in Acts 15 to 
through chapter 20. God led Paul in the second missionary journey to revisit those who had evangelized and strengthened the church in Acts 15, 36-41. That's the problem I have with, with crusades. Okay? Crusades, maybe one out of a hundred is really born again. You have a great altar call, not born again. It's a proven fact. And if you're proclaiming the gospel, then you're responsible to feed them, to direct them to a church. So what do they do in crusades? They're going to have the harvest today, right? They're going to give those names to the churches that gave them money and participated with them, whether they're Methodist, Presbyterian, or Catholic. So you're going to send people where they're not going to get fed? Well, to you. Wow. When your son and daughter was born, did you send them down the street to get raised? We don't see it, do we? Oh, you're just a grumpy old man. Well, I'm old, but I'm not grumpy. <laughs> you got to look at the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. You understand? Hmm. I've been around 43 years. I wasn't raised in church. Paul became the founder and pastor of the Ephesian churches, you know. Paul strengthened many and without doubt included the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation as an outreach and growth of his uh, Ephesian ministry. God was doing with Paul as he had done from the beginning. He had evangelized the area of Tarsus, if you remember, after he came from Damascus. And I let down over the window with the basket and he scurried to Jerusalem and he talked to Barnabas. Barnabas took a chance. Nobody wanted to take a chance. He threw this Peter and others. And then he got too hot to handle by the Jews. They were going to kill him. So they sent him out to Tarsus. He was there for seven to nine years to preaching the gospel. And people were saying, hey, you know the guy who used to kill the church? Christians and all that. Uh, we've never seen hide our hair, but he's up there preaching the gospel now, so we glorify God. Paul was not interested in hobnobbing. I've been around from the beginning of the Calvary chapels in the early 70s. We were all the same. Now it's all about hobnobbing. You have got the pack eight, the top eight, or whatever. They seem to be, like Paul says in Galatians, these guys seem to be somewhat. They're nothing to me. I like Paul. If you think you're something, you're probably nothing. It's interesting to me. Just do what God's called you to do. Don't worry about who you know or who you want to hang out with. They're just men. And sometimes not very good men. Sometimes sheep become rats. Sometimes rats become sheep. <laughs> How do you know which is which? By the word of God. You drop the plumb line. Simple. God was doing with Paul, as he said, from the beginning. Um, and he later was sought out by Barnabas to help him establish the work at Antioch in chapter 11 of Acts 25 through 26. And he was ready to leave for Spain also after three missionary journeys, as you know, Asia and Europe in Acts 13 through 19. Um, Paul makes this uh, indication in Romans 15, 24 through 25. Now, many people think he never got it. I think he did. Because he was released for a time from prison. Then he got re, uh, rearrested, and that's where he lost his head, Second Timothy. So I think he did. There's a little book, Roland Allen. I think we still have it upstairs. But, um, you know, many of the books today are being uh, just not being reprinted, good books. A bunch of trash is being printed today. A lot of watered-down theology and heresy and nabbit and grab it and the emergent church and all this stuff. Bad theology, okay? 
red blood moons and all this stuff. Everybody runs after this stuff. Whipped cream. Oh, it's, it feels, oh, it, oh, it tastes so good. Yeah, but it just gives you cavities. Roland Allen, in his book, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, dealing with man's clever methods of doing missions apart from God's direction and dependency on the Holy Spirit. And in his preface, he states the following. Listen very carefully. Quote, St. Paul's churches were indigenous churches in the proper sense of the word. And I believe that the secret of their foundation lay in this uh, in his recognition of the church as a local church as opposed to our national churches. And in his profound belief and trust in the Holy Spirit indwelling his converts and the church of which they were members which enabled him to establish them at once with full authority. Paul goes on the first mission journey, preaches the gospel, 20 people get saved. He's leaving in a week. He says, okay, you three guys are the elders. You're the pastor by the Holy Spirit. Commend you to God. I'm gone. What, they didn't have seminary education? Nope. Wow. Man's church or God's church? Amazing. Today, we look at the church to send out people rather than God calling them out, focusing on securing our support for man prior to our going. Yet Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I sent you, in John 17, 18. If God has sent you, what are you waiting for? If God told you to go, why are you asking for man's affirmation? He can't go before you to provide a job where you go. He can't provide somebody to send money because he deals with two ends and ties them together. So you have to write your letters and beg and do all this crying. And then you want to put a label on to God. Wow. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Hmm. The starting point to hear the voice of God must be the word of God in prayer, ladies and gentlemen. As you are ministering in the church of God. Then the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart personally as you work in the church, as you're laboring in the church, perfecting the saints and yourself in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Many of you have been here for many years and God has used you and he used you here. Some people go out on their own. They go to Mexico. They don't wait for us to have the Mexico outreach. They go on their own do something else. They just do it. They don't need our permission. They're just doing what God's called them to do. They need somebody to bark orders to them. Amazing to me. The guidance of the Holy Spirit will be for our entire lives, ladies and gentlemen, according to our calling and gifts, even as the Proverbs says. Listen to Proverbs 29, 18. For where there is no vision, the people perish. But the word vision does not mean vision for ministry. It's been interpreted wrong. But rather, the revelation of God's word to guide and instruct believers for life by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. If you're not being guided by the instruction of God's word and the Holy Spirit, direction, revelation, then you don't know where you're going. You're making your own map. Wow. The method is by prayer, communion with God. The Lord Jesus constantly modeled prayer to his disciples, as you know, in order that uh, he hear the voice of God, and he did that every day, a day at a time. So we are to pray about everything, but be anxious for nothing. 
by prayer and supplication without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. When we don't pray, then we fail. We become weak, anxious. Our hearts fail. Everything to God in prayer. So God called Paul to the mission field. Not the church. You must depend upon God. Not upon me. Not upon Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. What is God telling you to do? Secondly, Paul the author. Now Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. I think 14 because I believe he wrote Hebrews, but I'm not going to argue or anything else. But he wrote the majority of the New Testament. The first group is called soteriological, big theological word which deals with the study of salvation. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Hebrews. Romans treats the gospel as a power of God unto salvation through the righteousness of Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. The proclamation... Uh, propositional uh, proclamation is in chapter 1 verse 16 through 17 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ it's the power of God unto salvation the Jew first and the Gentile for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith the just shall live by faith quoting Habakkuk 2.4 from there he hammers it from every direction so that when you when you think you're something you end up under God's judgment or under his grace which one do you want all men are guilty before God wow 1 Corinthians deals with the um, carnality of people in the church, leaning on human wisdom, um, disciples of men rather than Christ alone, creating divisions. I'm so glad for 1 Corinthians because the church shows us that the church always has carnal people and how to deal with them. Biblically, it's important. 2 Corinthians deal with Paul as spiritual father attempting to reconcile with his impertinent children who think that they know better than he, the father. It is a gem among God's treasure chest, the Bible. But if you're a parent, you already know that. Because there comes a place where your kid thinks you don't know anything. But time will flow and they'll come back and say, Dad, you know, I want to thank you for everything. You were so wise. That's the problem with being young. Right? Ike's. You know, you know everything. But life shows you, you barely know anything. <laughs> Time is a test of all things, ladies and gentlemen. The letter reveals to us many of Paul's sufferings, difficulties, and heartaches, which over otherwise we would not have. It's an incredible epistle. It gives us a great insight into Paul himself as a servant of God and love for the people of God, in spite of all of that. Same model after Moses. Paul acts out what our Lord describes to be the conduct of a true shepherd willing to lay down his life for the sheep, not a hireling who flees when the wolf comes, according to John 10. To me, today, there's too many hireling pastors. They shouldn't be in the pulpit. They serve for fame, dames, and gain. Three bad things. The only reason you should be behind a pulpit is because God called you. And when you get there, you did not sacrifice anything. The only thing you gave up was hell. God's not a debtor to anybody. That God would call you to proclaim the gospel, what an incredible privilege. We should walk so low and so humble. 
Galatians deals with the deception of faith by accepting another gospel. Now, if you don't think Christians can be deceived or walk away, then why are all the warnings in the New Testament to Christians? If you're a Calvinist, you have to answer me. Jesus said, if you don't abide in my word, I'll cut you off. John 15. He's not talking about fruit. He's talking about abiding. You can't depart from somewhere you were never at. To depart from the sanctuary, you have to be in the sanctuary. To depart from your car when you pull in the park, you had to get out of your car. To abide in your car, you have to remain in the car. <laughs> it really, it's real simple. Galatians is called the Magna Carta of the Christian liberty, spiritual dynamic, and the Christian declaration of independence. Galatians was the epistle that brought spiritual awakening to Luther, the just shall live by faith, Galatians 3.11. Galatians has been called the battle cry of the Reformation for that very reason. Then we come to the book of Hebrews, which would fall under the category of soteriology or soteriological, the study of salvation, written to the Hebrews who wanted to go back to animal sacrifices and the law rather than relying on Jesus Christ, the excellent ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate revelation by which through the Father speaks alone in these last days. Interesting, Calvinists go to the book of Hebrews. It says, brethren, 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 brethren. And they say, this book is not for Christians. Who are the brethren? Some of the most severest warnings. You're not interpreting it properly. Your brother's a brother in Christ. Simple. They had to come to Christ, not going back to the law. So God destroyed the temple and the sacrifice in 70 AD. No more temple, no more sacrifices. No more atonement under the law, which was temporary. The second group is called Christological, the study of Christ. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are known as the past of the prison epistles. Ephesians deals with the riches of Christ and the believer in Christ, sitting in the heavenlies, able to live out the life of Christ through him, standing against the wiles, of stratagems of the devil because of your wealth in Christ. Philippians treats the imperative need of a Christ-like mind that must exist in the believer to serve others in fullness of joy rather than self-centered, complaining, and murmuring attitude. Colossians treats the person and work of Christ who is a sum of total of deity as sufficient for atonement, life and practice without the need of any other addition of works, mystical knowledge, or ritual, or ceremony. In him you're complete. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead body. Colossians 2, 9, and 10. Philemon deals with Paul's loving intercession as a type of Christ for the repentant sinner, Onesimus, the runaway slave, in order to reconcile him back to his master, Philemon. Those are the four. Then you have the third group called 
eschatological, another big theological word for the study of end things. First and second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians focused on Paul's love for his spiritual children under persecution and the promise that Christ is coming for his church. Second Thessalonians deals with the deception that someone had written or spoken that the gathering, the rapture of the saints had taken place. So Paul reminds them that certain things he had told them had to take place. And then the church will return with Christ to set up the kingdom. This is how you see it. First Thessalonians, Jesus comes back for his church to rapture. Second Thessalonians, Jesus comes back with his church to set up the kingdom. Is that clear? Two different focuses. Simple. Now, the fourth group of Paul's epistles are called ecclesiological. Ecclesia called out the church, the study of the church things. The epistles of 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are commonly known as pastoral epistles. And here we have many important things that we need to understand. These three epistles deal with the study of the church um, order and disciplines. First Timothy was written first along with Titus simply by the fact that Paul was still at liberty at that time. And then he's rearrested again later on where he writes his last will and testament. The purpose of first epistle of Timothy was twofold. First, to urge Timothy to remain in Ephesus and to prevent, listen, to prevent the teaching of false doctrine. First Timothy 1, 3 through 4. Today, if you mention names or expose heretics, people get mad at you. Oh, you're self-righteous. You just think you're unloving. Really? Listen to what Jesus says. If you stumble one of these little ones, put a stone mill around your neck, and that's a big old rock, big, taller than I am, a big stone mill, and be cast into the sea. That's what Jesus thinks about false doctrine. So when I name people like Francis Chan or, or, or all the positive confession and, and, and all the other guys, don't get upset. Paul says, Hymenus, Alexander, Demas. Because Paul loved the church and he knew these men were dangerous to the church. You understand me? Parents, who do you warn? The kid down the street or your child? Hmm. Paul commends Timothy to wage a good warfare in 1 Timothy 1.18. But also, secondly, to provide for Timothy some um, guidelines of conduct in the house of God if he should delay his return to Ephesus in 1 Timothy 3.14-15. Very specific, he tells him. It seems that Paul's prophecy to the elders uh, at Ephesus had come to pass there was much heresy and they had raised disciples to themselves as Acts 20, 30 declared and also to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 at this time. Now the distinction between the three epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, are evident. 1st Timothy and Titus are more formal and deal more with teaching of sound doctrine. The word sound there, we get our word hygiene from it. Good doctrine. Church order, worship, officers in the church, discipline, and the minister. Second Timothy is more personal to exhort a young pastor in his call, accountability, and warning against false doctrine. Doctrine, 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 doctrine. What does the church not want anything to do with today? Doctrine. 
The emergency church said, we don't want to fight over doctrine. No, let's fight over doctrine. You better fight for doctrine. Absolutely. Doctrine will keep you on the straight and narrow. No doctrine will put you out by the wayside. Simple. Second Timothy has been called Paul's last will and testament as he's ready to be decapitated. His head's going to roll. Wow. In 1976, listen carefully, publication of Fuller Seminary down the street here. An article appeared by William Lasor entitled, Life Under Tension, Fuller Theological Seminary and the Battle for the Bible. Lasor stated, I believe that the Bible is without error, but I refuse to let someone else define what that means in such a way that I have not that I have to go to ridiculous extremes to defend my faith. In other words, the words of Lasorp prefers a defense for the Christian faith that does not require support of the trustworthiness of Scripture in areas where the veracity can be factually tested. Evangelical graduates, students, have sometimes sold their soul for a Ph.D. degree. Fuller has given up inspiration of Scripture. They don't believe it's inerrant and infallible. You need both of them. You can be inerrant at times. I give you a test, you pass 20 questions. Boom, 100%. Wow, you're inerrant. I give you another test. Boom, you pass 30 this time. Wow. But then I keep giving you tests somewhere along the line. You're going to miss one or two or ten. Now you've proven you're not infallible. Both are necessary, ladies and gentlemen. And if you give that up in the scripture, and 99% of the church already has. Replacement theology is taught by 99% of the church. If you're off on Israel, you're off in prophecy all the way. Simple. No argument. The psalmist declares the efficiency of the scriptures without any apologies. Listen to Psalm 19, 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect. We're going to believe PhD or the word. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise is simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret fault. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, did you hear anything there that the, that the word of God is questionable? That you can't trust certain things? Wow. The Apostle Paul tells us that all Scripture, all the New Testament is given by Theopanusto, meaning literally God breathed, expired from the mouth of God. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Who are you going to believe? The Scripture or a Ph.D.? You want to go with a PhD? Enjoy your time in hell. 
You want to believe the Bible? You're going to have a great time with Jesus. Simple. The Apostle Peter tells us that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any personal origin or impulse. Prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men were spoke as they were carried about by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. You're going to believe Peter, you're going to believe Paul, or you're going to believe a PhD who contradicts them. You tell me. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. All scripture is given by inspiration. You understand when 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 was written? There was no New Testament? Only Old Testament? The New Testament was being written out? And he put side by side the epistles with the Old Testament. Wow. The Holy Spirit does not give any new revelation today. Does not add to the scriptures. But he does open up the word of God for life and practice by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. First Corinthians uh, chapter 2 verse 9 through 16 says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And then he goes on to say, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit or receive them. They're foolishness to him. But we have the mind of Christ. Now we've got to put it on, ladies and gentlemen. He turns the light on. Once again, who are you going to believe? Man or God? God inspired Paul through the Holy Spirit to be the author of divine revelation. What you possess in your lap is God, inerrant, infallible, divine revelation. Far different from any other book that is in this earth. Thirdly, Paul the martyr. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 gives us this. First, Paul saw his life of faith in the present as a sacrifice to God. Listen carefully. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4. Paul saw his life as a process of death. We want to live forever. People get plastic face, plastic this, plastic that. You, you may look good. You're going to be the best looking corpse at Rose Hill, but you're still going to die in time. All right? People are so... Like you get in an accident, you get your, your face all messed up, go get some plastic surgery. But if you're going to get plastic surgery because you want bigger breasts, bigger hind end, or whatever else, shame on you. You don't need none of that. God make a mistake for you? You're trying to go fishing. The personal pronoun I is emphatic. Paul's personal condition in the present tense. By the way, that's his last will and testament. He's ready to die right now. When someone's ready to die and he talks like this, you pay attention to him, okay? The picture is figuratively being poured out as a drink over the offering and the evaporation. The, the vapor goes up in service as pleasing to God. The only other time it appears in the New Testament is in Philippians as a sacrifice for others. Listen, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice for you all. Philippians 2.17 Is your service to God a sweet aroma? Is your service to people the same? Or do you think that people are so lucky that you serve them? What should, I, what should you think about God then? Wow. Paul saw his life 
in the physical body as a process of transition to a spiritual body. This thing's a tent. We start out like grapes. We end up like raisins. We start out like green bananas. Then we're so spotted. Nobody wants to look at us. Welcome to life. It's inevitable. If the Lord tarries, one day you're going to read Xavier Reese died. Don't believe it. I moved. I'm instantly present before the Lord. The word time is kairos. It means a specific, definite time, a season, a decisive epoch waiting for. When you die, you're instantly present. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will be instantly present in hell. Make, me, make sure you understand what I'm saying. You will be separated from God for all eternity and there will be no second opportunity. Anybody who tells you you have a second chance after you die is a liar. Get away from them. You saw the event as a positive experience, not a bummer. Oh, bummer, I gotta die, I can't win. Then you don't believe in the resurrection. You really don't believe the gospel. The word departure means a loosening or dissolving. The word appears only this time in the New Testament in this form, but it was used for the breaking of camp of soldiers to get back to the home base. It was also used in order to set at sea and loosening the cable so they can take off on their destined arrival. This is the word. This is just a tent. I'm just passing through. I'm a pilgrim. Now notice, secondly, in verse 7 of 2 Timothy 4, Paul saw his life of faith now in the past as a service of discipline. Wow. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the race. Paul saw his life as one of courage. Again, the personal pronoun I is emphatic. He's talking from prison. He's ready to die. The word fought means to enter a contest and appears seven times in the New Testament. The tense is the completed action in the past with present results. The implication is that he had been courageous and victorious. And now, in another courageous contention, listen, the final one. How are we doing? Are you going through something? As soon as it's over, you're going to go through something else. Are you going to fight? Are you going to quit? Are you Christian or pancake half done? What are we? The contest is called a good fight. Good meaning beautiful, handsome, excellent, admirable. That which is external. Good evidence, internal quality, spiritual. The word fight agon means to exert energy in the conflict and we get our word agonized from it. I competed in gymnastics in high school and in university and national level. If you're a serious athlete, you know what it is to agonize. I agonized. I, I, I worked with bloody hands and callus and torn ligaments. I didn't care. I wanted that crown. I wanted that girl to kiss me. I was number one. I wanted to be there, okay? I wasn't competing for number two, all right? Too many Christians say, well, I'm just pacing myself. <laughs> Pace yourself. Talking about, we're in a race. Are you racing to win? Or to just... Get a little cardio. The definite articles before the word good fight, identifying the ongoing discipline required of a Christian in order to overcome every obstacle and barrier, even as the athlete that trains 
He'll take a cortisone shot. He'll, he'll, he'll work with pull muscles and ligaments. He'll do anything. He will endure pain because of the love of that crown. Should we do any less for that which Christ has called us to? Wow. Paul saw his life as one of commitment. He declared to Timothy that he had finished the race victoriously. The word for race is dromos. It means a course of life, the ministry chosen by God for him, another athletic metaphor. The word is found two other times in the New Testament for John the Baptist's ministry in Acts 13.25, for Paul's prayer when he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.24. He declares that his course was custom made by, for him by God. That course would accomplish God's purposes and reveal his flaws and his weaknesses. You may look at my course, what I do, and say, that's nothing, I can do that. But my course won't show you what a creep you are. God will put you through things to show you how, how bad you are, how weak you are, and how much you need his help and his strength. So we don't compare ourselves among ourselves as we be what? Unwise. Wow. It would cause Paul to depend on God to mold and shape him day by day to the image of Jesus Christ and less of him. The less you are each day, the better off this world is. The more you're like Christ, the better off everybody around you. It's just that simple. Paul saw his life as one of contending for the faith. Notice the word kept there means to guard, to attend, and to care for, to preserve. People give up doctrine. People give up other Christianity. They just kind of just want to be loving. Listen, if you just want to love, love, love without doctrine, you're not, you're not a Christian. You don't love Christ. You love you. You don't want to fight. Now, I don't want to fight, but if you want to fight, let's fight. But let's fight over the right things. Doctrine. What did the Bible say? If you're willing to give up the Bible, get up and walk out. Church doesn't need you. You're supposed to fight. Paul saw himself as a steward of the gospel, at one day giving an account as a soldier to guard against the enemy, pleasing his captain of his salvation, Jesus Christ. How would you like if soldiers went overseas and they gave up the first battle? Here, here is my gun. Now I'm going to, the enemy, I'm going to kill you or you're going to kill me. When you don't value your life, there's no negotiating. It's real simple. It's not that complicated. The apostle knew the message was of divine origin. The gospel is a message foreign to this world. Often it's not received. People think you're crazy. It's attacked. It's ridiculed. So what do we do? We cower. We, we water it down. We placate people. You can't. You don't bow the knee to people. All these statues being taken down in our country, put National Guards around there. Shoot them with rubber bullets. We'll stop it real quick. That's our history. Bad, good, it's our history. Let's learn our history. All right? When you give in to the enemy and you give him an inch, it's going to take a foot. Real simple. Real simple. The apostle declares his faithfulness to the gospel deposited to him which he kept by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. 
the message believe benefits his own life first and then the others that he is preaching to by total dependency on God. Notice thirdly in verse 8 of 2 Timothy, Paul saw his life of faith in the future now as a celebration of joy. Listen carefully. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day, and not only to me also, but also to those who love what? His appearing. You love his appearing? Then you love the Lord. If you're not looking for his appearing, you don't love the Lord. Paul is looking forward to a reward, the word crown Stephanos, that which is crowned like an Olympic Games, that righteous crown, being faithful to the Lord. This crown is related to loving his coming. His appearing gives great incentive for holy living. In 1 John 3, 2-3, says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, even though it doesn't yet appear where we shall be. We shall be like him exactly as he is. And, when, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Real simple. Four other crowns are mentioned in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy 4, 8, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Four other crowns. Now notice Paul was looking for the Lord to reward him. The Lord is called the righteous judge, meaning the perfect umpire. He knows exactly who's faithful because he knows my heart. This is the same thing as the Olympic Games, crowning. The time of the crowning would be at the specific day, his appearing. The believer will be rewarded at the Bema Seat of Christ. At the rapture, we go before the beam of Cedar Christ. The word appearing means epiphanias. It means becoming visible. The word was often used for the glorification manifested by small g, gods of the pagans. And the New Testament is used for both the first and the second coming. Paul was looking forward to see not only himself be rewarded, but others. In other words, the apostle did not believe himself to be in any particular favor or unique place that others could not have reward also. He included others. He was looking for others' reward. The apostle identifies all those who be crowned by loving the appearance of Jesus Christ, strengthening them through the difficulties of life and unexplained things rather than causing them to look at life with regret or even a pessimistic attitude. If you're a Christian, you have every reason to live for. Today, a big thing is Christian suicide. What? Suicide, but not Christian. That's a pagan practice. There's only five people in the scripture that committed suicide. I wouldn't want to be one of them. No murder shall enter the kingdom of God. Are we clear on that? So what are pastors doing? They're compromising. They're being worldly. They don't want to offend people. Wow. The perspective about the warfare is that it is a good fight. That's what Paul says. It is worthy fighting for their victory and has been accomplished through the spiritual weapons of prayer and the Holy Spirit of God and the scriptures. You see, before you were born again, your life was messed up. Then's the time that people take their life. When you're a Christian, you've got it all. What are you doing trying to take your life? We're backwards. We're misrepresenting the scriptures and the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. You see, their commitment of salvation was to run for the purpose of winning and wisdom was in seeing the value of all their obedience to Christ who is invisible in the journey of life to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's triumphal exit. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was personal friend of the pupil, John the Apostle. 
At age 86, he was urged by Rome, a Roman proconsul, to reproach Christ and to be set free. He declared, quote, 86 years have I served him, and he never did any injury to me. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Wow. The proconsul said, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with the atheist and be set free. Polycar solemnly said, away with the atheist, pointing to the pagan crown. Wow. 86 years old. What would you sell out Christ for? Every one of the disciples, when Jesus said, one will betray me, every one of them said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? You think you can't? You must think highly of yourself. Wow. He joyfully went to the stake, thanking God, being worthy of it. The believer is to not lose heart in his or her present service to God of the age that they live in. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which for a moment is working for us, a far more exceeding turn away to glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, but the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Do you believe that? Everything's going to pass away. Your house, your car, your funky body, all of it. Gone, gone. One day. The believer has no regret knowing that he or she has been willing to sacrifice their life to God out of love, proving the perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. The believer is to know that all service in the past is recorded by God in his book. We just finished Malachi. Listen. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance were written before him that those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, Malachi 3.16. What's God writing about you? And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 15. Lake of fire that was made for Satan and his angel. Nobody will be there by accident. They'll be there by their own decision. For God is not unjust to forget your labor of love or work, which you have shown towards his name, in that you minister to the saints and do ministers, Hebrews 6, 10. How are we doing in service? How's our heart? How's that commitment? The believers to know that future service always points towards death. Spiritual? No, but physical. If the Lord tarries, I will die. Physically. Instantly present. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Listen, one thing. Forgetting those things that are behind. If you rubber neck in life, you crash. Look straight ahead. And reaching forward the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal, the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Secondly, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. How are we doing in the death department? Are we dying to self? Or living for self? Hmm. The body is but a temporal dwelling, ladies and gentlemen. One day we'll put it off and you will be instantly present before the Lord if you're a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The believer's work will be judged by fire, the motive of the heart, why you did it and how you did it. God's not, God's not impressed how much you've done or what you do. He's interested, why did you do that and how did you do it? Just like you as a parent are interested in why and how your child does things, right? Attitude, heart. Hmm. 
1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, the being the seed of Christ. Why I did it, how I did it. Chapter 4, verse 5. Got to enable Paul to be what? A faithful martyr. And so, this was the sum total of Paul's life commitment. Interesting. Paul the missionary, called by God to the mission field. Not man, God called him, sent him. Paul the author, inspired through the Holy Spirit to be the author of divine revelation. Thank God. And Paul the martyr, enabled by God to be a faithful martyr. And so he will be to us if that ever happened. He is faithful, ladies and gentlemen. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray that you would just deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness, Lord. Father, go before us and we just pray for those listening and those that are out there, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts. And Lord, they might repent. And so, Lord, I thank you. As you're lifting your heart to the Lord, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're coming from. God does. I'm not important. He is. Or maybe you're just a Christian and you're just kind of just going through the motions. You know, you're, you're, your heart's not all there. It's just half-hearted. You, you're straddling the fence. You know, you're in the world. You're in the church. And, you know, and it's, uh, this week Jesus wins. Next week you win. And um, you need to commit your life to God. But if you're not born again, if you've never asked Christ for forgiveness, if you've never bowed your knee to him, today's the day of salvation, not tomorrow. If you want to repent of your sins, this is your prayer to the Lord. He's going to save you and forgive you of your sins right now where you sit. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Lord, give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.